Hi, I'm Awisto Yu, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 10 new Class of 2021 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Eve L. Ewing, a 2021 National Fellow. Eve is a sociologist of education and a writer from Chicago. She's the author of three award-winning books, two of which are books of poetry. Her forthcoming book, Maya and the Robot, is her first book for young readers. She also writes for Marvel Comics. Eve's writing, research, and teaching explore themes of race, education, black girlhood, and womanhood, and Afrofuturism, as well as her hometown of Chicago. Currently, she's working on a book about the historical and contemporary role of schools in creating anti-black and anti-native racial ideologies. Eve is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration. Eve, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. Thank you so much. So to start, can you just tell us a little bit more about the project you hope to work on during this year? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, one of the things that I do is I teach courses on race and education. And I've taught those classes. Um, I actually started out my career as a middle school teacher. And so I've taught students at pretty much all different ages. But my classes on race and education are for I've, I've taught in prisons and PhD programs, undergraduate programs, master's programs. And um, I always begin my classes in the same place, which is talking about the history of the way um, schools for black children and schools for native children, um, kind of the way I see it defined the beginning of the intellectual landscape of what schooling is uh, as we understand it today in the United States. I think that it's impossible to tell the story of public schools without beginning there and holding the contradiction that on the one hand, schools have always represented an incredible site of promise and potential and liberation. And on the other hand, have been used in a really explicit way to um, demonize, dehumanize, and belittle children, control them as part of a larger racial project in the country. And so I finally got to the point where I I thought, you know, I should just write this all down in a book rather than bringing together lots of different sources about it, which is what I currently do now when I teach. And I think it's an important conversation to have as we are having broader conversations in our country about what racism is and where racial hierarchies come from. So I'm excited to be working on this project. So as you mentioned, you're an educator in different forms and currently teach at a university, and you've written quite a bit about education. What drew you to education, both as an educator and now as someone who's in intimately studying the topic. My earliest interest in education actually comes from my own life growing up. I attended public schools here in Chicago for my entire life. And I became aware at a really young age that even though I was good at the thing that we call school, that lots of other young people saw uh, school not as a space that was uplifting, but as a space that was really constraining, constrictive, um, and harmful to them, including young people that I'm really close with, uh, including my brother, close friends, and people like that. And I saw the ways in which their skills and their gifts were not always celebrated and uplifted in school. So I think I became aware at a young age that school is not the same thing for everybody, and different people and different bodies are treated very differently in schools. And that schools can be spaces that enforce a really narrow idea of what goodness is, what intelligence is, what talent is. And I also saw racial inequality and um, socioeconomic inequality in schools at a really young age, just in my community as a Chicagoan and visiting other schools, talking to other people and things like that. And so I've always been interested in education and always thought about, because I attended schools 
in a very segregated context in, in the city growing up in Chicago, um, I think I always thought also about the relationship between race and schooling. And I think the other thing is that I just really love children. I love being around young people. The more that I study schools and the more time I spend in schools and around teachers and students, the more I come to intimately understand the histories of the ways that they've been such oppressive and harmful places and the intimate connection between those histories and the present moment. And at the same time, I maintain this naive hope that schools can be sites of liberation and self-actualization and community power, not just for young people, but for families, for neighborhoods, for our society more broadly. And so um, just kind of obsessed with, with education. Um, and you could say that, you know, I always think it's a little weird about myself that like I kind of never left middle school. <laughs> I'm, I'm, an, I'm an adult that's obsessed with, with schools. Um, but I just think that they can represent something both so oppressive and so powerful within a broader national discourse. So your first book of nonfiction titled Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side explored the causes and consequences of the closure of over 50 public schools in 2013. So can you talk more about the impact that that book had both personally to you, given that you grew up there, but also broadly around the conversations that took place in Chicago around schools uh, and education reform? So in a way, uh, the book has been a really powerful reckoning for me personally in just going through the journey of connecting the dots between the history of racism and segregation in Chicago and the contemporary reality that we find ourselves in. But also what I really wanted was to give a tool for people that are engaged every day in battles to try to make schools celebratory, safe, and engaging places for young people across the country, and people in particular that have been fighting against school closings in their own communities, I wanted to give them a tool so that they wouldn't have to rehash the same arguments over and over. Because when you are a person in community engaged in, in a political fight, there's a way in which oftentimes people in power have a lot of resources at their disposal to try to frame the narrative. Um, they have a lot of resources to talk to the media. They have a lot of resources to put together graphs and spreadsheets and press releases. And I wanted to make a tool that people in communities could use so that they could say, well, look, this is the history, this is the facts, this is a different way of framing the conversation. And I've been really grateful and humbled to see the book taken up in that way, um, not only in Chicago, but across the country, as well as um, I've been really humbled to see it be used as a tool for newcomers to the city or for veteran teachers or for high school students themselves, for all kinds of people that are interested in having a little bit of context and history about how we got where we are. Um, I've been really just uh, awestruck by that response. So as you explore, you know, some of these themes in your new book and looking at education, can you just talk about what you're hoping, where you're hoping actually kind of to, to move off from as a jumping point from your first book to this next book? Well, something that became really clear to me as I was writing about school closures and something that I say a lot in lectures that I think is hard to say and maybe a little bit hard to hear is that I think a lot of our policy decisions, when communities are faced with them, people jump out and they say, you know, this just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. It's self-contradictory. And they point out all of these reasons why these decisions are not great decisions empirically. And the reason they don't appear to make any sense is because many of these decisions are rooted in a much simpler and more disturbing fact, which is that 
people do not always view children of color as children at all. In particular, they do not view black children as children. And something that is unfortunately discussed much less often, but I think is also true, is that they do not view native children as children. And I think that it's really important to talk about the fact that that's not that's not just a matter of like personal disposition or personal bias. That disregard, that dehumanization for our kids is really baked into the history of the way schools have functioned in this country. It's baked into our media. It's baked into our politics. We see it all the time. You know, right now, people are very upset about the the young girl in Michigan who is incarcerated because she didn't complete her online schooling, right, that ProPublica wrote about. She didn't complete her online Zoom classes, and so a judge has put her in a juvenile detention facility, and, you know, part of why she didn't do it is because she has ADHD and all of these issues, and we see stories like this all the time where, you know, terrible stories come out of young people being um, mistreated in obvious ways like that and then subtle or uh, more really insidious ways. And I really have come to believe that there's a basic dehumanizing that is at the root of, of those, um, of those kinds of actions and those kinds of policy decisions on a more macro level. And so what I'm hoping to write about in this book is, you know, taking us back to the history of where that comes from and to help people understand that it can't just be about, you know, implicit bias or changing the curriculum. We actually have to address this much deeper and much uglier fact that a lot of these folks do not see our kids as kids. And so, I mean, you've studied education very intimately over the past several years, um, having gotten also your doctorate in education. And so I wonder for you on a personal level, what it's been like to both study the history of education so deeply um, and also reflect back on your hometown and your own personal experience as both a student and educator. You know, um, it's an experience that inspires a lot of gratitude and also inspires a lot of pain and difficult feelings because for me, as a black person who was born and raised in Chicago and who is, you know, still close with former students that I've taught and who is a very dedicated auntie and, you know, play auntie to lots of kids and somebody who wants to be a parent myself these issues are like real life or death issues to me. They're not hypothetical. They're not theoretical. You know, I have experienced what it's like to look at the, the preschool admissions process for a three or a four year old that you love, that you would, that you would give the, the sun and the moon and the stars for and to feel like there aren't options for affordable and accessible early childhood education in your community. And, you know, I've been a teacher who is looking at the the eyes of a, of a parent who's asking me, you know, what am I going to do with my kid who I don't feel like they have a safe and supportive option for them to go to school because they got a C when they were 12, right? And we live in a system where that outcome determines the entire fate of their life. What am I going to do about that? And I live in a place where I see my former students you know, sometimes working in low-wage jobs are really struggling because they haven't had educational opportunities at the post-secondary level. And so these are all questions of um, survival for me and uh, for my community. And I feel incredibly privileged that I have the space and the time and the capacity to step back and try to put together some tools and some ways of having conversations that I do hope will make a difference. Um, and I also feel immense gratitude for the community of scholars and activists and organizers and mentors and young people and agitators that are all part of the ecosystem of this work and that, you know, we're all working together to try to figure this out. But it really does feel, uh, feels urgent to me. 
So, I mean, your writing is uh, pretty extensive, both in terms of form and topic. You write uh, poetry. You're also an author of a nonfiction book. You also write for Marvel Comics. So can you talk more about just the writing process and what's different, if anything, as you kind of move between um, and among those forms? Yeah, I think that um, writing is something that I feel compelled to do that I've always felt compelled to do. I don't remember a time that I wasn't a writer. And I think that at this point in my life, I don't feel like, you know, the difference for me isn't as strong as I think people often assume it is across genre. Um, Because for me, all writing is about clarity of an idea. And it's about having a core idea that you're trying to get across to some audience and honing and honing and working and chipping and eking everything away until you get to to the really raw material of what that core idea is and trying to express it with some kind of clarity. And so for all of the writing that I do, um, it's really a process of getting ideas down and being comfortable with how terrible they usually are at the beginning stage um, and really working with myself patiently, working with mentors, working with colleagues, working with friends, you know, running ideas past people and having the, the patience to just get to the, the point where I feel like I'm getting across what I'm trying to say. And if anything, I feel like that's the thing that for me is the, the core of what it means to be a writer. And the great thing about that is it doesn't actually have a lot to do with talent. It has to do with practice and it has to do with faith and experience because I'm at a stage in my life where uh, I know that if I write a bunch of ideas down and they seem really jumbled and garbagey, um, I have the faith and the experience that I can get them to something good if I, if I work my way th- diligently through that process. And I think that what holds a lot of people back as writers is that they think that that, like gems are supposed to fall from the pen the first time around and it just doesn't work that way and so um, that's the thing I always encourage other people to do is to try to just develop the discipline and the patience and the forgiveness with yourself to work through what you need to work to, through to get to something good as well as the humility to ask other people for help and return to different texts that you want to learn from over time and um, I think it's just such an, such an iterative process but unfortunately the only way to write anything is to sit down and write it <laughs> and it's just, it's something that, um, that I struggle with and a lot of writers struggle with just getting ideas down. But the more patient you are with yourself, the more productive you can be in my experience. That's great. Do you have one form that you're more inclined to depending on how you feel? Like how do you, how do you kind of switch between forms, uh, whether it's like what you feel personally or might be, might be happening in the world? No, I, yeah, I think it's really like, it tends to be that an idea, Um, This is where I start to sound like really woo-woo and vague because um, I really think that ideas want to be expressed a certain way and that different ideas and different arguments lend themselves in different ways to different forms of storytelling. And I think that I try to give myself permission to expand the fullness of what that can look like to, you know, a couple of times I've started out writing something as a poem and then it becomes really clear through the writing of it that actually this, this really wants to be a short story. It needs space to just have prose and to breathe and to just be told in this direct way that's less about poetry and the parsimony of language and that, that type of craft. And, you know, other times as I've, as I've started, um, writing more graphic work with, with Marvel and, you know, now developing some of my own ideas for, um, for graphic fiction. Um, again, if you, if you have these characters that are really larger than life, I'm working on a project that I won't go into, but the characters are really, um, 
flashy and bold. And it's a very, I see them very clearly in my head in a very visual way. And so it tells me that that needs to be a visual medium. It needs to be a visual project. So I really kind of go with um, what seems to be best in service of the idea. And in a way it's, it's funny, it's actually kind of similar to being a social scientist because I think that when I was trained in graduate school about how we think about research methods, there are some people that like fall in love with a certain research method and they want to do it for everything, regardless of whether it matches the actual question. And I was trained that, you know, you have a research question and you figure out the best approach to answer that question. So you don't try to do something as qualitative interviews if it would be better as a survey and you don't try to do something as a survey that would be better as participant observation and, and so on. So I think of writing and genre as being very similar is I have an argument that I'm trying to make or an idea that I'm trying to convey. And my job is to pick the best tool for doing that. So you have an upcoming book titled Maya and the Robot. It's about a Chicago fifth grader with a robot sidekick, which sounds awesome. Can you just talk a little bit more about that project and what shifted you to also writing for young readers as well? I think many of us really form our foundational identities as readers when we are young people that a lot of, if you grow up reading um, and, you know, people come to reading in different ways at different times in their lives and some people never come to reading at all. But I think for a lot of us, the idea of, you know, who you are as a reader, as a young person is really formative because this is when you have all this time, right? There's actually adults forcing you to sit down and, and read a book and talk about a book, right? For an hour a day. And I think I have a lot of nostalgia for that time in my life when, you know, um, it's, it also happens to be that, you know, we grew up, we grew up before there were devices and things like that. So I spent a lot of time reading as a kid because I truly had nothing else to do, but I always knew that I wanted to write a book for young readers because as a young person, books were so important in my life. And also because as a teacher, books were so important in the lives of the young people that I spent my time with every day. And so, um, you know, I kind of tried and struggled. I really struggled historically with writing fiction um, at different times in my life. And so it's not something that I planned. I was like, oh, in five years or 10 years, you know, I'll get around to this. It would just be great. And I ended up having a conversation with my niece and she was about like four at the time. And I took her, she, she was obsessed with robots. You know, different kids go through different phases. Some kids are dinosaurs, some kids are trains, princesses, whatever. She went through a robot phase where everything was a robot. All she talked about was robots and it kind of came out of nowhere like nobody could you know it wasn't traceable to like a movie she saw or anything like that she just suddenly became obsessed with robots so I took her to the science museum um, here in Chicago because they had this this robot exhibit and afterwards she out of the blue was sitting in the back seat of my car and she leaned back and she sighed heavily and she said I just wish I could have a robot to go everywhere and be my best friend and I was like, wow, that's a really poignant and profound and sad and beautiful and incredible image. And I thought of, you know, she was just a little kid at the time. And I, I thought of kind of an older fictional version of her. And once this, this kid, Maya, popped into my head, I, and, you know, her and her robot friend, I, she just wouldn't go away. And I couldn't stop thinking about her. And it wasn't in the plan professionally. It wasn't in the plan creatively. But it was the first time in my life, you know, I've had that experience of desperately needing to sit down and write something because it, it just wouldn't leave me alone. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the project. Um, the book is also in an indirect way. You know, I started my, my career as a science teacher in middle school. And so I'm actually really passionate about science and STEM access. And um, 
I think that as a teacher, I was often looking for ways to make science and STEM stuff exciting and accessible for my students, um, especially to see people of color, especially young women of color represented in, in those kinds of stories. And I also just really wanted to tell, you know, a fun story. But it also, the book indirectly kind of tackles um, a couple of other bigger themes like, you know, friendship and, and making friends at school, feeling like you belong. But um, the book also sort of touches on gun violence and the ways that when gun violence occurs in our communities, it has these huge ripple effects that I think sometimes people don't really account for. Um, and the ways that when somebody is lost uh, to us, that, you know, that's not just something that hurts their immediate family. It's something that hurts, hurts the community around them. So um, I'm really excited about the book. I, I love it very much and really excited for people to read it. And it's also, you know, in a way, I always think of everything I write as being for young people. I think that all of the books that, you know, the three books I've previously written, even though young people are not their primary audience in some ways, I've, I've always envisioned them as being for young people. And they've been, you know, taken up and engaged with by a lot of young people. But I'm excited that this book in a more direct way is going to tap into, I, I hope, an audience of, of readers that are, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, who maybe haven't gotten a chance to tackle a book like Electric Art. Or, or 1919, um, as well as teachers and librarians who are really important to me. I'm excited. Hope that they like this book as well. So this has been a very challenging year for so many of us um, around the world, starting with COVID and then with the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I'm just curious about what gives you hope right now during what's been a really challenging year. Um, you know, whenever people ask me the hope question, I, I always have a hard time answering it because I, I think that I don't tend to think in terms of hope um, because I think that there's a way that hope can be a very passive term um, because it sort of implies that like, well, I just hope this is going to work out, <laughs> right? Like for some people, it implies that that things are going to be okay regardless and that um, that there's like a kind of fundamental optimism that I think I honestly don't share about the world. But what I do feel is inspiration and I feel gratitude and I feel inspiration and gratitude when I see young people and organizers of, of all stripes um, stepping up and really resisting, I think, not only resisting an extremely violent regime of racial terror that's that's happened in this country that is facilitated largely, although not entirely and solely by police and policing, um, but also the way people have stepped up to care for each other and provide basic fundamental support um, when the state has failed to do so and when our government has failed to protect us or provide the basic things that people need to survive. I'm really inspired by the way that people have stepped up to do that. But I'm also scared because um, that work is really exhausting and, you know, people have limits and people have um, boundaries around what they're able to do. And I think in this moment, I'm really worried and scared about the sustainability of um, these movements and about the really intentional and frightening ways that police and now fe deputized federal agents are being led to suppress those movements. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I feel. I feel motivated. I feel inspired. I feel moved. I feel compelled. Uh, those are, those are words that I would use for how I feel. Mm, that makes sense. And I appreciate your feedback on that. I think that. Oh yeah. It's not sense. feedback. I say the exact same. Every single talk I give, everybody's like, what? Tell us how we can have hope. And I'm always like, I'm not a hopeful person. <laughs> so, uh, I'm a happy person, but not a hopeful person. Yeah, that makes sense. So final question and one that I think most writers don't love to answer, but I'm going to ask it, but where do you want to be with your project a year from now? Oh, 
I don't mind answering. I mean, I think it's important to uh, have a sense of that. You know, I'm really lucky to have some time and space to, to sit down and, and do research. And, you know, Ghosts in the Schoolyard was a book that required a lot of me being out and about in the world, talking to lots of different people. And I think that this next book is really going to have some of that. Um, but first of all, I can't be out and about in the world in the same way. None of us can right now. And secondly, it's, a lot of it is going to be archival work and kind of theoretical um, thought building work. And so I think I'm excited to hunker down and just be reading a lot and uh we'll see how much i can get written in a year i don't know i'm a, I'm a pretty fast writer um so i'm gonna knock on wood that that i can at least be you know part way through drafting something but that just seems like a great way of jinxing myself and ensuring that i don't get anything done so uh but but we'll see i believe in myself and i'm grateful for the time and the support well we look forward to supporting you this year and thank you again for your time today Eve. thank you It was great chatting with you Thank you for listening to this interview. If you enjoy this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2021.